Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cyclic community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Building a brand with racing is an art that requires serious craftsmanship. Doug Martin built one of the first and biggest international mountain bike racing teams as their sports marketing director in the 90s, Team GT. With stars like Hans Ray, Mike King, Chantal Dacour, Julie Furtado, Nico Voyot, Steve Peet and many more. Doug managed a global power team of athletes, sponsors and partners, connecting them all. His greatest gift was leveraging all their stories. His view, I am a product of all the great people I worked with. I would say he is a true brand builder with a big heart and clear vision. We talk about all the luck he had meeting the right people at the right time. What he really enjoyed at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And how he convinced Ironman triathlete Miranda Carefree starting her Instagram account in a wind tunnel. Enjoy the ride. Hey, Doc. Hey, Dirk. Nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing you and hearing you. After so many years, and uh, as we just talked, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that you take your time out of uh, baseball and basketball and, and football, you know, to, to, <laughs> to speak about cycling uh, with me. Um, so, uh, uh, good morning to, to beautiful uh, uh, Long Beach, California. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Dirk, and good evening to you. It's, it's just terrific to see you after all this time. It seems like we just kind of picked up right where we left off. Yep, that that's what we did. So, hey, I, I've I've been looking through some of my my old uh, stuff, and uh, and uh, I found a, a catalog from Sport Import from 1992 with uh, um, bikes and athletes and uh, young Hans Ray in there. You know, young Hans Ray. D do you remember the first time you saw him doing crazy trials move on a mountain bike? Where that was. Uh, I do. Uh, I mean, Hans was Hans was already part of GT when I got there, so uh, I think he had just come on board as an athlete. Uh, you know, fresh fresh from Switzerland. So, uh, I mean, Hans was amazing the first time I saw him. And and what's perhaps more amazing is that he's still today doing it all, and still maybe more relevant than ever. So, yes, I think what a phenomenal phenomenal athlete. Yeah, I mean, like he just—I think he just finished uh, um, one of his uh, adventure tours uh, around the Bay Area in, in, in San Francisco and around with some of his buddies, you know. And uh, and this is now thirty uh, plus years on on GT bikes. Uh, amazing. amazing, just amazing. You know, and it's funny because Hans started. Hans understood the value of non-competition exposure very early on. I mean, he really took a page out of the surf playbook, uh, where at the time surfers were either competition surfers or uh, trip photo trip surfers. Right. And, and Hans went the photo trip route. He started just pitching stories. You know, you were right. probably pitched some stories by Hans. 
and uh, way ahead of his time in all of that. Just, just amazing. Yeah, he definitely immediately took uh, mountain biking to a different level with his uh, hibbity hops, right? Um, hibbity hops. <laughs> breathtaking. <laughs> um, so uh, we want to go back and talk uh, talk about like you know how how brands have been building their values and and and, and image with with racing and, and sponsorship and and when I met you, you were the 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 man at GT for for team management, you know the the babysitter of the stars. Um, so, so when did, when did you start with, with GT? When did this start for you? So I started in GT in 88, 1988, and I took over the team duties, uh, which were very loose at the time, uh, in 1990. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, the team thing just, just started to just grow exponentially. And, uh, the mountain bike team was a function of, GT moving into the mountain bike market. GT is a company, as, as most people know, that was just built on racing. The very first GT built was a race bike. So racing was always you know, just paramount to the brand, the marketing of the brand. So when the company entered the mountain bike arena, you know, racing was a, was a natural kind of occurrence. And something not just that we wanted to be in, but wanted to be good at. So it was, it was, it was, I was fortunate <clears throat> to have been given a lot of free reign to build the kind of team we needed, uh, get the kind of budget we needed um, to, to go out there and do well and really expose the things we wanted to do, expose in order to sell bicycles. Right. And, and, and uh, you've had a pretty good hand in, in, in picking all these uh, international athletes and, and putting this team together for many, many years. Right. And, so how, what, what was, do you had a plan for this or, or how did you go about this? Uh, you know, I don't know that I had a plan. I, I mean, it, it, it varied over time. Uh, you know, in those early days of mountain biking, uh, kind of who was, the, the talent pool wasn't real big, right? In those early days, the talent pool was the talent pool. And as mountain biking grew in popularity, more and more athletes, primarily from the road, started to kind of stick their nose in there and they became the possibility for new talent. And that doesn't mean that all just because you were a good roadie, it was going to translate into being a good mountain bike athlete. But I had this discussion with Zap not long ago, how uh, in those early days, the talent pool was really the road. Mm -hmm. um, so to answer your question, Dirk, uh, I, you know, I think I got lucky <laughs> a number of times, <laughs> quite frankly, just made the right picks. Uh, I think, you know, we tried to identify people that were going to, you know, both do well on the bike and do well off the bike, because that's a huge part of being a brand ambassador and athlete is being a representative of what it is we're trying to do. Uh, and as I said, I just, I just think, uh, I think I got lucky in, in a number of cases. Yeah, and then and then the one thing I I felt uh, it quickly differentiated uh, GT from other brands was that uh, there was a broad range of international riders, much more like for an for an American company, right? I mean, um, was that a push from the management or who 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 pushed that level? Great question. Well, th that paralleled our entry into different international markets. So as we grew as a brand as a company and entered 
entered Europe and Australia and, and, and South America and whatnot, uh, so came the need to be relevant in those companies outside of just a U.S. athlete. Now, some athletes transcend all cultures. You take a Julie Cortado, for example. The entire world recognized her. But uh, outside of outside of that, uh, you know, we needed athletes that were going to be representative of our growth into these new markets, as I said, whether it's Europe, Pacific Rim, whatnot. Um, so and I think it was 1992 that we took a big leap. We already had Hans, a uh, Swiss athlete. Again, he Hans transcended <clears throat> kind of all boundaries. He was recognizable everywhere. Right. Um, but in 92, we took a, we took a, a premeditated leap into getting a Euro guy and a Euro gal. And that's when we uh, signed uh, Gerhard Zdroblik out of Austria and Chantal Decor from Switzerland. And that gave us a European cross-country man to go with our U.S. cross-country man, a European cross-country woman to go with our U.S. cross-country woman. So it was premeditated in that regard. And, and, and at the beginning, um, of course, everything was, was very much focused on, on, on cross country, right? Was, was that, uh, just because there wasn't uh, really, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, and I may have some of these dates wrong, but we were, we got into the full suspension game pretty early on. So, uh, the downhill thing was, it mattered to us. And, um, Uh, when, when we came out with the RTS and then later the LTS, but the RTS, I think was, a, if I'm not mistaken, that was, might've been 1991. Like Julie Furtado went out and won the world. It might've been 1992. I think I might have my dates wrong, Dirk, but in 92, she won downhill worlds right. on an RTS, one of our brand new suspension bikes. Wasn't even available to the public yet. Uh, so we were already making strides to become more relevant in the downhill scene. And then in 93, we made a big push into downhill uh, as we, we already had Jimmy Kite, as I recall. Uh, Dave Wonderly was a downhill rider. And then uh, after, after 93, we picked up Mike King. And uh, of course, Nicolas Bouillot started to emerge out of France. In 93, he was riding for one of our distributors. So we had that down, we had that, yeah, Nico, we had that downhill presence, you know, also growing up at the same time. Did, did you actively pick him up, uh, Nico, or how did he? I didn't actively, I didn't actively pick up Nico. I wish I could say I was the guy that, you know, found him. Uh, uh, I didn't. He was racing for our French distributor at the time. But clearly he became, he was on everybody's radar in a hurry. So we, uh, he just kind of transitioned into the factory team uh, sometime about 93, 94. And then we had, we had Mike, we had Nico. We later picked up Mercedes Gonzalez. So uh, we kind of had these two separate programs running, cross-country, mountain bike, and uh, each were pretty formidable. So it sounds like that that, that you, you guys were already pretty much ahead with, with working with the distributors, right, looking into these markets and not just driving it through uh, your, your views from the U.S., right? It sounds like that's correct. And this, and, and as it relates to this podcast, which is all about branding, you know, right. as we, as we grew globally and entered new markets and ultimately made deals for XYZ to be the distributor in whatever country, you know, there was expectations about what they were going to sell and how they were going to, you know, what their dealer network was like. 
But there was also an expectation that that they kind of saddle up to our racing philosophy because GT was always a racing company and racing was how we exposed our brand. Racing was how we validated our bikes and racing is how we got in front of people on Sunday. So as the saying goes, we can sell it on Monday. Um, so, so we encouraged all of our distributors to have kind of their own local slash regional teams. And in a number of cases, the factory team in California was able to identify talent that, that made the jump over. Right. So it was, was this part of your work in the beginning to develop this uh, growth plan through, through global and national sponsorship? Or how did that uh, come together for TT? Uh, uh, well, I won't say it was my plan. There was a team effort in all of that. So all the, the selection of distributors and so on, that was sales and upper management and so on. But as new distributors came on, You know, obviously, you know, the marketing department was made aware of it. We knew to start, we had to start feeding them assets, whether it was photography and ads and, you know, just staying in tune with what it was they were doing so we could support them, give them what, gave them what they needed to be successful. And then in turn, uh, it was our responsibility to stay in tune with what was going on in that country. So every time we added a country, it was sort of a new layer of, kind of work and management, if you will. So uh, <clears throat> next to racing, you also, you know, um, were very instrumental in taking care of, of, uh, of media, right? I mean, that's something where we met, uh, especially at the races, um, something that, that wasn't too, too, no, not seen too often. I, I feel, you know, that the, the race manager also was uh, involved in media How did this happen that you picked up this? Well, that's a funny story. Right about the time I started working with the team, I remember R Richard Long, the the you know co-founder and visionary of GT Bicycles. He pulled me in his office and he said to me, Doug, I need you to get to know that guy, Zap. <laughs> he says, I know the BMX magazines, but I don't know the adult magazines. I need you to get to know that guy, Zap. Now, this was just about the time you know, that mountain bike action sort of ruled the world. They ruled the airways, if you will. And Zap is the man. Zap's still the man, but Zap is the man. And uh, Richard understood the importance of relationships, just knowing people, getting to know people and getting on their radar. And uh, so I, I, I took that on as my responsibility. And obviously, <laughs> Zap and I are dear friends to this day. Um, but just as I got to know you, I think I found myself as just one of the representatives of the company that was just out there all the time, you know, traveling all these different countries, you know, obviously I would talk to magazines as it related to the teams and athletes, but I took it as part of my job to be able to talk about the company, about the bikes, to maybe follow up with an editor on, Hey, listen, you and I met in the pits the other day, we talked about you getting a bike. I'm going to put you in touch with our distributor there and kind of broker some, some dialogue. So I, 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 it's just sort of a hand in hand effort that came along with it. Uh, and it was very organic in that regard. Okay. So how, how was it uh, for you to, to get to know Zap the first time? Remember that? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't remember anything <laughs> distinct about that day. I remember it was a, uh, it was something that High Torque did. They had this annual party up at this, this hoity toity restaurant in Hollywood called Chasen's. And uh, I still have a photo from it somewhere, but uh, 
it was just all the mountain bike community and whatnot. And, and, uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, you know, that's, that's the, the easiest, most approachable guy in the world. So I, again, there's nothing particularly memorable about that night or that first encounter. Okay. But as I said, because we were all part of this, this thing, mountain biking in the early days, uh, I think all of us, and, and, and this is, you know, you and I look at it, we were all just part of this little community that was, that was in the epicenter of this just amazing sort of, uh, phenomenon known as mountain biking. Yeah. So going quickly back to that, uh, crazy, uh, downhill wheel of, of Julie, uh, was this, may I ask, like, was this, uh, also on her wish to, to race or how, how did you bring a cross country star on, on a downhill? Bike well, those were, the, those were the days when everybody kind of raced everything. Although there was some separation started to happen, but there was still a bit of everybody raced everything. And Julie, just a phenomenal bike handler, just a phenomenal descender. So she'd been entered in Worlds. Uh, I don't know that she planned to race, but she came up short the day before in the cross country. And I know she was very disappointed about that. Um, so she ended up entering. Uh, she, she, she chose to race. Uh, that particular day. She was the last rider down. She had some crazy big number, triple digit number. Um, again, Zap and I were reminiscing about this just the other day. And uh, I think uh, she was the last rider off. And uh, uh, Giovanna Bonazzi, if I'm not mistaken, was already down at the bottom celebrating as far as she was concerned. It was done. It was over. And Julie, Julie just runs through and just nails this thing and wins. And uh, um Full disclosure, I wasn't there. I was at the bike show in Southern California because we were expecting our first child. But somebody came up to me. Somebody came up to me, and I was standing there with Richard and said, Julie just won. And I said, no, that's not possible. She raced <laughs> yesterday. She didn't win. No way. And she and, and, and he said, no, she won the downhill. And Richard and I are both just kind of staring at each other like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was something and so it ended up it was funny it was the the bike she rode on the gtrts uh it was this springboard moment for that particular bike you, that we couldn't have scripted any better so kind of right. funny and i think today if i'm not mistaken julie's still the only person that's won a cross-country world championship and a downhill world championship yeah I, I, I would uh, think so too, but you know, maybe a good point to double check. You know? Um, um, because it, it hasn't happened for a long, long time that, that double racing, right. You know, race cross country and, and, and downhill, even so the, the cross country guys, uh, seem to become, uh, amazing downhillers these days. Um, that's definitely, uh, yeah, probably one of the time. Hey, in, uh, in, uh, in, in our pre, we talks here, you made a nice, uh, Nice quote where, where you described yourself as like, you know, you're the product of the people I worked with. I thought that was really very, a very powerful uh, summary of your personality. So what were those key people that, that you worked with that, you know, uh, helped you and supported you or inspired you to? Oh, wow. Well, uh, well, that the answer, yes, I am a product of the people I've worked. I mean, we all are, right? We're all products of the people that have taught us and we've raised us and we've worked with and been around. I just feel I've been extremely lucky. And that goes back to my retail days in South Florida and then in Southern California, two-wheel transit authority. 
I mean, I could rattle off 15 names just, you know, just from the last shop I managed. And then, of course, at GT, it was everybody at GT. We had just an amazing, amazing team of people. It began with Richard Long and Gary Turner, and it trickled all the way down. I'm hesitant to name names because I'll leave somebody off, but everybody knows who they are. And then that extended as I moved uh, kind of through my cycling career. Um, uh, you know, nerve sports. And of course, I spent a long time at Felt. And Felt was another, Felt was kind of a, 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 a master's degree in a lot of things by virtue of, again, just the people let, that let's, I had to work with. Uh, take, take a step back, like, you know, after, after this, this crazy successful, uh, a trip was GT. You you went to Nerf, and for those who don't know, that's a, a cruiser brand, right? That's a California beach cruiser, uh, shorts and and t-shirt riding bike. How was that for you, Come, coming from <laughs> racing to not? Am I wrong? Well, it didn't start that way. I'll tell okay. you, Nerf started. Nerf was actually before its time in a lot of ways. And uh, Bill During, who was the head of product at GT, he was part of the startup group at Nerf, and he he kind of wooed me in there. Nerve started as a um, an online consumer direct brand. This is in 1999, keep in mind. Wow. Online consumer direct brand that sold bicycles, skateboards, snowboards, surfboards, and wakeboards. And it was venture funded. And, uh, you know, again, because we were going to go consumer direct, there was this business model in place that, you know, everybody was going to do quite well. Um, uh, and te oddly enough, teams and athletes were going to be our primary marketing mechanism. Well, we found out in short order that just because, um, you know, we knew, we knew what we knew from bicycles didn't mean that that was going to necessarily translate into all the different board sports. So, um, you know, we, we, I learned a lot of nerve and, uh, um, but we, we quickly kind of got out of the whole board sport. Thing. And then it became, and then, and then it was, so then it was a BMX brand and then we moved into cruisers and then ultimately lifestyle bikes. So there was a, there was a, a bit of a morphing on that whole thing. Yeah. I would just say it in, in, in the modern world, uh, you guys pivoted a couple of times on there. We pivoted, we pivoted. And uh, so that thing really kind of, that thing went through the spin cycle and, and, uh, and I was there about three years. Then I, you know, then I worked for myself for a couple of years and then, And then the felt thing. Yeah, but but then then you you, you found another uh, a place with a heavy heavy uh, racing DNA with uh, with felt. I did. Uh, I had known Jim um, from my time my later time at GT. Uh, interestingly, GT had been looking to purchase felt. Okay. Uh, in in the late '90s, when Jim was just just kind of a one man band. Um, it didn't happen for a variety of reasons, but, uh, so I knew Jim from back then and everybody knew of Jim, but anyway, yes, I got, I got, I started doing some work with, uh, with felt, uh, Bill during Jim felt and, um, in a marketing capacity, they were small and, and, uh, things were kind of happening fast for them. Uh, felt was all in on the skinny tire market. That's road, road and try, et cetera. Of course, Jim had a lot of credibility in triathlon. Again, through teams and athletes, and um, and then that ultimately just kind of parlayed into a quote unquote real job. Nice, and and then also like uh, 
even so you've, you've done some skinny tire, uh, work at GT. I think that then this was the full focus, right. You know, uh, was, was pro tour and, uh, and triathlon. Yes, all of it. Well, of course, I mean, I grew up in skinny tire. I grew up raising road and tracks, which is something I've, I've known okay. and loved all my life. And of course, we had a we had a pretty successful little run at GT in skinny tire uh, that uh, most people kind of forget. But we were a sponsor of the national team, the U.S. national team, for you know uh, a good long period of time, and then the whole Atlanta Olympics project '96, blah blah blah. But yes, uh, unlike unlike GT, which was BMX Mountain. Felt was felt was all skinny tire, and uh, but the applications are all the same. This was a this was a company that was literally started when Jim built a bike and then went out in one Kona, and he found himself in the bicycle business. Not unlike what Gary Turner did back with BMX in the seventies. So uh, so racing was very much a part of the company's DNA and very much, and a very important part of its marketing and branding. I don't know that a company like Felt could exist without racing, which you and I talked about a little bit. We talked about from a branding standpoint, those, you know, the companies that are out there that are, that, that almost need to race, they have to race because it is who they are versus the companies that decide they want to be a part of racing and jump in it. And maybe they need it. Maybe they don't need it. Maybe it's good for them. Maybe it's not good for them. So, yeah, that, that's definitely a, uh... A quite important differentiation, right? That the that can be racing, but uh, it seems from your point of view, not everybody, uh, for not not for everybody, is it's it's a success formula, right? To be have a race team to to invest in racing. I don't think it is. I think sports marketing in general, even you know, inside cycling and outside of cycling, is something that makes sense for some companies and doesn't necessarily make sense for others. I mean, if you and I were in the paper towel business, we don't need a race team. We don't need any athletes. We're going to sell as many paper towels as we can sell. Uh, so, but it, it, as it relates to cycling, of course, again, it's in some cases, it's part of that company's DNA. And, and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't race, if you don't put that at the forefront. In the case of Felt, it was a racing company. It was a technology-driven company. So... Racing validated the technology. The technology was born out during racing. Those things fed each other. And then we, as marketers, took that and put it out there at the consumer level. So, so, so what, in hindsight, were your most exciting uh, projects you marketed or product? And like, you know, what products do you remember? Like, wow, that was a, a big one or a funny one or... What you mean in, in, you know, all in or just at, you mean at felt? No, all in. They said like, wow, well, this is the one I well, definitely. Well, I think, I, you know, at, at GT, there was at GT, there was probably uh GT. There was, you know, four or five or six. I mean, every time okay. they came out with a new suspension bike, the RTS, the LTS, you know, the Lobo, uh, titanium hardtails, uh, obviously uh, project 96. Uh, that was a that was a tremendous effort, right? And let, let, let's and let's, then, let's, uh, you, let's stop there for for, for a second. The Project ninety six was with the Olympics, right? Project ninety six was with the yes, the Atlanta Olympics. So uh, let, let's double click here and, and and give us some some insights. What 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 was going on there for for Olympics? Well, in in, in the early nineties, once once we got our footing in mountain biking and we had some credibility, and that was about ninety one two three, we 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 had some wind in our sales. 
it was time for us to move into road bike to become to become just a uh, a full service brand. Right. right. Dealers want to know that they can go to one company and, and satisfy all their needs. So we kind of needed to get in the road. It was the last piece of the puzzle. Right. Um, um, we had no credibility in road. If you think about it, GT, we're still viewed as this BMX company. So as it turned out, the United States cycling was in the process of putting together an in-house national team. That's basically a trade team that operated out of the Federation. They would race in stars and stripes race whatever bikes they raced. So uh, that opportunity came our way in 93. And that was a that was a four-year deal that went through the Olympic Games in 96 with the idea that it was going to culminate uh, in the unveiling of this never-before-seen bike, you know, designed to win gold medals on U.S. soil in 1996. So uh, that the timing of that effort was was really perfect for our place in time. And, and how long did this take this project from, from the 93 to 96, three years? So let's, you know, it went for, so it went four years. So you got 93, four, five, and six. Okay. And I think it might've even, I think that deal might've even extended past that in the 97, perhaps 98, but by then we had credibility. So then at that, at that point we had credibility in road. So it was a much easier to approach a pro road team. And, and not have them look at you like, you know, who are you? Uh, so deals like Montgomery Bell and then Saturn. And then later on, I was gone. That, that parlayed into a, into a lotto deal. And, and, and so what, what, uh, what was the, the product result from that, that Project 96? What, what kind of bike? A road bike? A track bike? Or what was it? Yeah, Project 96 was a track bike. It was okay. a track bike. The idea is that it was specifically designed to win medals. Um, you know, we had we had uh, Marty Nostan at sprints and Aaron Hartwell on the kilometer, and then we had the team pursuit. Uh, truth be told, we fell a little short at the Olympics. <clears throat> we didn't we didn't win as much as we'd hoped we were going to win. Uh, you know, and, but that's a that's a good reminder, and I think to everybody that when you enter into these deals, when you enter into a sponsorship, what matters most is not sitting around and waiting for a result. What matters most is the leveraging of that deal along the way. It, it's, it's that old saying, it's the, it's, the, it's the journey, not the destination. Uh -huh. Because the destination may not be there when you get there. Or the destination could be disappointing. So you've got to document the journey. And this is key in all of sports marketing. Leverage and promotion and making noise along the way. Uh, it's sports marketing 101. It's marketing 101. That, that's one of the, you know, we had this pre-discussion and, and even now, but it, it seems to be one of the, your, your key words, you know, leveraging, you know, leveraging the athlete, the, the, the story, um, the, the journey. Um, have you, where did you start uh, with this, uh, with this skill to, to, to find the story behind? I mean, Have you ever worked in, in a, I, I'm asking this even so we know each other, but I don't know. Have you worked in a magazine or have you, have you, where's where this, this, uh, coming from that you are so people? Well, and, again, uh, I, I will, I, I think the answer to that is I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of really good people and I've been, okay. I guess I've been smart enough to pay attention. I think that's the answer to that question. Um, Maybe not enough, but paid attention to the degree that I needed to. But 
again, I keep going back to Richard Long and uh, Richard taught me very early on uh, as we started to bring in sponsors for a mountain bike team. He would, he would drill into me and say, look, Doug, it's great. We're getting XYZ dollars from this company and everything else. Get a promotional commitment from them. We want everybody to say yes to a promotional commitment. It can be of their design, where they choose to do it, how they choose to do it. We'll help them with photography, but get everybody contributing to that message. And it's so simple when you think about it. If you've got a team or a facility or an event and you've got X number of sponsors, 10 or 50 or 100, and they're all talking about that same thing in their voice, on their terms, right. everybody benefits. There's an exponential effect. So basically what you're saying is like that, in this thing. To, to bring all these uh, part sponsors from like uh, tires, uh, suspension, bar ends, uh, saddles, uh, uh, helmets on the same page. Uh, yes. Uh, getting everybody to come in and deciding they're going to do something that, that, talk, that, that talks about this athlete on this team or this team or whatever. And that's not just industry. That's out of industry. And again, I go going back to the mountain bike days, every, every year in conjunction with our photo shoot, we had a sponsor summit. So we brought every a representative from every sponsor in. We'd go to dinner, we'd sit around, we'd spend the day just talking. But it was very important for us that everybody get to know everybody else in that room, that we go around the room and talk about what our common goals and objectives are. Uh, we wanted people uh, exchanging ideas on how they might be able to co-promote with each other, not even necessarily us. But if I can get my car company to do something with, you know, uh, the tire company, let's say, maybe that car company specs a lot of the same tires on the automobile sector of that business, and they can start doing something together that centers around our team. Well, guess who benefits? We benefit, they benefit, everybody benefits. So that's leverage. That's co-promotion. And that's just, it's just critical. And it's always amazing to me when people do choose to sponsor something and don't participate in any of that. They kind of sit back and they wait for somebody to win a race so they can talk about it. It's such a fail. So, so what were some of your biggest leverage projects that you, you think, wow, that was a big one to leverage that one out to get this going? Well, 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 leverage is leverage is is the leverage is making noise. If I think about some of the promotions that 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 came about in some of our deals, you know, Acura featured us in national national print campaigns. Uh, Nike featured us in a national broadcast campaign all over their catalogs, their website. Uh, ESQ, which is a a, a, a watch, a timepiece division of Movado. They featured us in print advertising in, you know, highly affluent magazines. Those are things we couldn't have gotten on our own. But they choose, they chose, excuse me, to leverage the relationship with us. We benefit, everybody benefited as a result of that photo of that athlete showing up in that setting. And there's a lot. There's a long list right. of I know. And, and, and definitely uh, GT was one of the the top players there uh, getting connected to outside the bike industry. But as you started this, you know, was it, was it, was it easy because mountain biking was uh, very attractive or was it hard to get attention to the cars and, and, and outside industry? 
That's a good question, Dirk. I, I, I guess in hindsight, it was probably easier okay. than, than, say, going out today and trying to sell something that they may not just have all the, the cachet that mountain biking had. But you know, we both know it. We lived in it. Mountain biking was the golden goose back then. I mean, you could get anybody to pick up the phone. Now, whether or not you could get them to, to buy into a sponsoring, sponsoring your team or something or not was a different story. Uh, sponsorship is its own skill set than the selling of sponsorship. Uh, that's probably a different topic for a different day. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, the, the 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 ground was fertile. You mentioned Kona. When were you part of Felt already? When the, when when Jim Felt won the first Kona, or no, no, Jim Jim Jim's first bike that won Kona was uh, was uh, on uh, it was with Paula Newby Fraser, and I'm not even sure what year that was. And uh, Jim was a uh, Jim was an engineer, I guess, at Easton, working the specialty tubes division. And, They were they were kind of dabbling and darting in and out of cycling and and Jim built this you know Jim built this bike for Paul and Ruby Frazier because Easton was a sponsor of Paul and Ruby Frazier and it was just kind of wacky never before it's small wheels and aero tubes and all these things and uh, she went out and won it and that instantly put Jim on the map and and then so when was your first first time in Kona. Ooh, my first time in Kona. Um, I didn't go for a number of years uh, when I was first with Felt. I think my first time in Kona was probably 2012, wow. 2013, maybe. Okay. I, I, you know, I've been to, I think I've been to four Konas. I, it's not like I've been to 40 of them. No, okay. But uh, so you haven't been working very intensely with superstars in mountain bike in triathlon and in, in, uh, in, uh, in road. So what, 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 uh, athletes do you tend to easily say like, Oh, with these ones, it's, it's, it's easier or it's, it's, uh, more fun. Or like, if you describe these, uh, characters and workhorses from your view on marketing. Well, listen, uh, you know, obviously uh, there's a, there's a, a big swath of personalities. Some people are just naturally outgoing and gregarious and other people are just, they don't, they don't really want all that attention. They just want to kind of race their bike and head back to the trailer. Everybody's been good. I can't think of, I can't think of too many bad cases. So there's been a, just a lot of amazing people. I mean, but I'm sure you and I could put down the same list of people at GT, whether it's, whether it's Hans or Julie or Gerhard or Petey, Uh, Mikey, Nick, uh, just on and on and on, right? Uh, you know, at 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 Felt, um, you know, I I was very fortunate to work with a, a, a you know, and get to know a handful of triathletes that are just tremendous people. Miranda Carefree, uh, Danella Reef, um, Josh Amberger, you know, just some some really really good people. And then on the roadside, um. You know, we were we were part of Slipstream Sports, which was the Jonathan Vaughters program now at DF Education in those early days. And that was nice to see that program grow up. And that again, a bunch of good people there. Christian Vandevelt and Bradley Wiggins and um, you know, I, again, I almost too many names to remember. And then after Slipstream, uh, we kind of moved into the <clears throat> World Tour ranks via Argo Shimano which is now team DMS, if I'm not mistaken. And that had some big heavy hitters. 
Marcel Kittle, Joan Dagenkolb, Tom Dumoulin, Warren Bargiel. Oh, really, really good people. Everybody I just named it. Just right. good folk. And so it's hard to work with. Right. So like, but you got to see those in person and, 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 and go to the training camps and, 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 and set up bikes with them and, and do all these. Oh yes. Yes. All of that. In fact, it's, it's kind of interesting now because so much of, you know, we go, if we go back to leverage and co-promotion and right. expectations, now I'm on the other side of the table. It's not our team. It's a team we sponsor, which is very different from GT. When at GT it was our team, we could kind of dictated what we needed people to do and, who was on board. It's different when you're just one of the pool of sponsors, in our case, the bike sponsor. But again, the, the mission is the same. Get to know the athletes, get to know the team, get to know the other sponsors, talk about how we are going to leverage this program. Make sure the athletes have a good feeling about you. And, uh, and, and now we have the added dimension of all the digital opportunities, all right. the social media. Right. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's just fun. It was just fun to kind of help, help make that engine part of what right. we need to make it in order to sell bicycles. Right. Before we go into social and jump into, into today, but uh, I want to go back and you mentioned like, you know, building relationships, inviting the sponsors, you know, and, and, and sharing common views and goals. But also one thing that, that was, I would imagine, an important part of your work was team building, team building activities to bring all these different characters under, under one umbrella. What, what kind of uh, methods did you use at that time to, to, to do team building? Our, well, again, if I, if I traveling together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah, exactly. I could name a million stories and that was team building. Um, And it's funny you say that traveling together because if I think of all the, if I think of all the, uh, all the all the kind of moments that are etched in my memory. It's all during travel, <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that went wrong. And those and, and it, it, those really are the team building moments in a lot of ways. So when we had our team camps in the in the GT days, yeah, we you know we do stuff together. We might you know it's we went to we went to a Laker game for example, once, okay. uh, kind of a thing. All right, let's go. Let's go to a Laker game. And uh, for all these guys, I mean, especially the Euros, man, they never been to a pro basketball game. Right. And here we are at the forum. You know what I mean? And I managed to somehow get eight tickets, right? Four together up high, four together down low. The idea is that, hey, four of us are going to sit down low for the first half, then we swap seats. And uh, But people remember that stuff. You know, it's just a good time hanging out together. That, that's a good one. So like also the cultural part, you're mentioning that, that, you know, bringing uh, the, the Europeans closer to the, the U.S. Uh, culture and, and vice versa. I think so. But it's more just an opportunity to hang out. I mean, the, it, the, the fact that it was a basketball game didn't matter, right? It's really just about doing something a little different versus sitting in a rental car or on an airplane together. Did you ever, did you ever get to, to go to a soccer game in Europe? I did not. <laughs> okay. I did not. Um, still on your bucket list then. Okay. Still on my bucket list. I'll tell you a funny story. I had to go. It was in my later days at GT. We were courting. We wanted a pro tour road team. I want to say it was 98. And I was scheduled to have a meeting with Fest. I'm embarrassed to say this. Festina. It was before the Festina affair. 
Okay. So I flew over. I flew over to meet with Festina. I flew into Paris, and I had to drive down to Pau, which is where the French national championships were. I had no idea World Cup was going on. No idea whatsoever. Land in Paris, get my rental car, and I'm immediately in traffic that I've never before seen in my life. And I live in Southern California, so I know what traffic's like. I'm in traffic that doesn't move for just hours and hours and hours. I finally, I, I start eking around. There's this huge stadium, and I'm just inching my way around this thing. And there's a bazillion people. Finally get out of there. I get down to Powell. I check in later, and I'm having, and I, and I realize this is the World Cup's going on, and France is playing. And uh, I think France won, if I'm not mistaken, that <laughs> night or something. So, the, so it's all night long. Just horns and people out partying and just, it was just nuts, man. All my, and I was like, oh, okay, World Cup soccer. <laughs> so that's as close as I, that's as close as I well, got. But at least you experienced an, an, an after match, the after play. <laughs> yeah, an aftermath. Yeah, the, the overtime. Well, how cool is that? Um, hey, let's, uh, I want to, I want to go back to another point that uh, you mentioned the Olympics and, and, uh, and the U.S. team next to team uh, with, with, with brands. You've also been really much involved in, in national teams and Olympics and, and coach. How did you get into, into this segment uh, of, of uh, U.S. team coach? Uh, <laughs> well, I was a, let's see, I was an assistant team manager in Luca in 91. And that was really just a function of, uh, I kept just, I, I kept just kind of <clears throat> wedging my way into the team meetings because I wanted to know what was going on. And, uh, I was bugging the manager at the time. Hey, ask this, ask that, ask this, ask that. I, I, there's things I just needed to know that weren't getting asked. Okay. So I finally uh, said, Hey, look, man, why don't you just start coming with me? And I, I, I was like, it was this unofficial official thing. But anyway, to, to answer your question on 96, The, um, you know, mountain biking became a new Olympic sport sometime about 90, I think it was announced in 94 or so. And there wasn't a mountain bike national program nor a mountain bike national team at the time. Um, but obviously you needed a coach going into 96. And I, I just think I happened to be the guy that was, you know, on the radar at the time. And we had some success at Team GT and it, 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 it must have seemed like a good pick for the, for the Federation. No, I wasn't uh, I'm, very I'm very grateful for that uh, on that. And then, uh, and then the only other national team work I've done was in 2001. I was a manager of the U.S. team when the Worlds were in Vail. And we'll get to that in, in, in a minute, but back to the Olympics. Like, uh, how was it? Were, were you walking into the stadium with the U.S. team with the flag and, and all that? No. So Richard Long... Uh, as the cycling industry all knows, was, was killed two weeks before the Olympic oh, Games. Yes. Tragic, tragically killed, going up to Big Bear on his motorcycle. So uh, the opening ceremonies were a week after Richard was killed. Uh, I was scheduled, of course, to be in Atlanta, but everything changed when, when that happened. And so, uh, ironically, <clears throat> I was at Richard's funeral on the day of the opening ceremonies. And that's how that played out. I ended up going to Atlanta, of course, immediately afterwards. Uh, but an incredible experience, just an amazing experience. I mean, I, um, 
again, I didn't get to experience the, the, the opening or closing ceremonies, but because I was credentialed right, and because mountain biking was early in the schedule after everything was done, I got to go to a lot of other events. And that was a, that was a, a terrific experience from my perspective. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I can imagine that this, this, uh, put a completely different, uh, spin on on that Olympic experience losing uh, Richard Long the, the week before for everybody. Well, it certainly was for GT and it certainly was for a whole swath of the bicycle industry. Yeah. I mean, just a, just a mountain of a man. Yeah. Speaking about 2001, I was there as well in this crazy. Yeah. I was there in Vail when, when nine 11 happened. Wow. I, didn't I was know down that. in Colorado Springs uh, when, when it happened. And then, you know, it, uh, so how, how did you experience that, that kind of drama? <laughs> that is seared in my memory, Dirk. Uh, it was Tuesday morning. I was down at breakfast. Uh, I was getting, I was chatting with some of the juniors and, and it was kind of early and uh, people were trickling into the, <clears throat> the hotel restaurant and somebody walked in, one of the women, I can't remember who, walked in and said, do you guys see what's going on? And we turned on the TV. And at that point, the first tower had been hit. And we just sat there with the rest of the world, just mesmerized by this thing. Now, it's interesting because here we are at this international event in the United States, and everything starts to kind of happen now. We're, we're not only thinking about our friends, our families, what's going on here, you know, the, the state of the country, the state of the world. But then there's this event that we're dealing with. And athletes are either in route or thinking about getting in route. Families are on their way. Play, skies are shutting down. We don't know if the event's going to go on. There was a lot of layers to that onion. And, and, uh, Uh, it was it was really something, and we 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 everybody kind of that was that was part of the staff kind of quickly shifted into. There was this first order of thinking was, okay, who's here, who's not here? Is there any possibility that anybody on the team or anybody we know would have been on any of those flights? And 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 then is there any possibility that any of their family might have been? Is there okay now what? How do we get people here? Is the event even going to happen? Is it even worth for people right. to get here? And, and, and so all these things, just all these sort of logistical things sort of kick in. Uh, and, and, and all the while trying to just deal with this large, this impossible to comprehend sort of moment emotionally. It was something. Definitely like, yeah. And needless uh, to say, the event went on. Everybody finally made it. We, There was a bunch of people that ended up driving. There was a lot of people that just obviously never made it. The, the um, uh, you know, the United States had this storybook ending with Allison Dunlap, who was one of one of my girls at Team GT who I had hired. Right. Knowing Julie was sick and we had we needed a new U.S. woman back in 97. You know, Allison wins. I mean, you couldn't have scripted the end any any better from a, you know, quote unquote patriotic standpoint. Right. So everything about that was just an un unforgettable six days for me and for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Definitely was uh, intense. And at the same time, being up there in Vail and uh, outside, um, 
made a big difference, I feel, you know, instead of being somewhere. What were you doing there? Were you there well, as I, part I, of the German? No, I was, I, was, I was with Rock Shocks. That was a uh, 2-1. Oh. So I was down in Colorado Springs and uh, then came up and did uh, photo shoots and uh, just, you know, PR work. And um, yeah, my, my PR work at, at, at Rock Shocks. And the, the mini funny story I have is like getting back out. Right. I mean, like for a week, we couldn't fly back. And then, you know, when once the planes came back and I had to go back to, to Germany, um, you know, like I, I was one of the first flights and they only had like two or three a day to Europe. And so they we come to the airport and there's all these camera teams and all these photographers, you know, and we're all schlepping our backpacks. And then this this lady comes on and shows like a little like eight by 11, an A4 plastic bag and goes like, this is everything you can take on the plane. Hmm. everything bigger you have to put down and we're all looking at each other like so you're telling us we have to put our cameras and everything just down there and yeah and so there was no way we could bring this in there and and so i uh i called a friend in boulder uh who bought one of me one of those pelican you know suitcases to put put gear in protectedly so like this hard shelled case and it's all easy. Like, Hey, you know, uh, you got to help me. Yeah. I'll drive to the airport. And then once we're like, okay, how do I get the case? Right. I mean, <laughs> there was like, you know, like with all these snipers, there was all the army and everything. Like, how do I get down there and you get this, you know, and then it was a gray case. Okay. Like, you know, the, the best possible thing you want to carry around <laughs> on an airport. Right. After, everything about it is everything about it. Suspect. Exactly. So I started to like talk my way through uh, police and everything like, Hey, I'm going to get this and everything. And, and, uh, and then I call this guy and, and he was not even aware of like, you know, he's driving there and he's like, okay, where I'm supposed to drive. And I'm like, Oh, we got to be a little bit careful. Okay. So like, you know, do not just jump out of the car with this gray suitcase and run anywhere. Right. And long story short, uh, you know, we, we made it really like almost like an, an had to do it like when there's like a kidnapping and like he had to get out there and like get body checked and I had to get out there and, and we, he kind of like carried it over. And then the police guy came and brought it to me. Like it's filled with, it was empty of course. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was my, my big uh, takeaway of like wow. getting my camera equipment home safe. Wow. Um, Anyhow, so uh, back, back to you, and, and you mentioned like you know the the switch then that that came was that felt <laughs> was uh, was social media, right? I mean, before you and I've been living in the in the print world, you know, advertising, you know, all those uh, beautiful faces, pretty faces, smiling at us from the Julies and Hanses and whoever. Um, and then the switch came to social. H- how did you experience that 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 change in in, in marketing? From your side to social media. Well, as you know, I, that was more of a slow boil, right? Um, because, you know, obviously the internet came about in the mid-90s and then people started getting websites and more and more uh, as you moved into the 2000s, um, you know, marketing directors and marketing strategies shifted from print to digital, much to the dismay of all the print magazines. But at the same time, the print magazines were moving to digital too. So if they were getting dollars from you know, for one or the other, they were getting dollars, right? So, <clears throat> but that was, an, that was a, I know that was a point of contention for the, uh, the slow adapters in the print world that hadn't moved to digital yet. But, uh, and then, and then sometime about, and somebody would have to fact check this sometime about, oh, whenever it was 2000 and 
eight or nine or 10, whenever Facebook came about, um, you know, companies started going, hey, we should have a company Facebook page, right? All right. And uh, then Twitter comes about, hey, we should have a company Twitter account later on Instagram. And uh, initially, there was there were companies that knew what to do with those platforms right away. Some some took a while to figure that out, but it was a it was a definitely a new dimension in marketing because now we had these platforms that we had to not had to but but were could use to get our message out, and and uh, it required content and crafty wordsmithing. And, uh, you know, just that learning curve of what's relevant, what isn't relevant, what's sticky, what isn't sticky, to use an advertising term. And then with social media, of course, uh, pretty soon it was like, hey, athletes, they ought to have their own thing, you know, and uh, teams ought to have their own things. So it, 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 it added a, an exciting new dimension to all of it because everybody had this capability now to be their own megaphone. Um, and it added, in my estimation, <clears throat> big leverage opportunities, but it required work. It required work from everybody. It required work from the athlete, required work from the team, required work from the companies. Some people are good at it. Some people aren't so good at it. And that's true today. And so how did, did you remember like how you approached this change, like, you know, with your athletes and, and, and did you put them, set them all down and say, okay, you know, and you do this or that, or how, did it grow? Uh, well, yeah, it wasn't initially what I, what I recall most, it wasn't so much with the athletes as what do we do as a brand, you know, and there was a lot of internal, we had some long debates over, um, what do we use Facebook for? Okay. We had this, we had this thing that happened. We just want to race. Where do we put it? Where do we talk about it? We've got this website. Okay, it needs to go on the homepage. Great. Do we have a blog? Well, there was a group inside felt that felt we should have a blog. I was kind of anti-blog. I'm like, we don't have a blogger here. Blogger is blogging is its own thing. Right. But there was a there was a small contingent that felt we should be blogging. And then there was another group that said, no, we don't need to be blogging. We just just use Facebook for that. Facebook is de facto blogging. It's storytelling. That's all blogging is, right? We can use it for that. So it was, it was, it was more. What do we do with it as a company? And then, and then, as time went on, and uh, it, 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 and it, we, and we, we found it sort of found a rhythm, found our stride in what worked and what didn't work. That kind of made the athletes were able to adopt that same strategy. They knew how to talk about themselves, and then athletes started making their own athlete pages on Facebook you know, more professional profiles on Instagram and on Twitter and whatnot. And as we've discussed, there's, again, there's people that are really, really good at it, that are really, really active in it. And there's people that just, they're not, they're just not good. Or they're good at one or two and not the other. And that's okay too. Some people are terrific on Twitter and terrible on Facebook. And now we see those platforms changing too in, in the way of audience and demographic. And athletes are trying to figure out how to navigate all of that. I was up at the velodrome yesterday and talking with a young athlete. And she, like everybody else, she's about the age of my daughters. They're not even on Facebook anymore. They how, old, Facebook how, old, sorry, how old is that? How old is young? Oh, I'd say she's, you know, she's mid-20s. Okay, thanks. You know, Facebook's become kind of this old folks' home, right? For social media. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so it's, 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 a, it's still evolving and it will continue to evolve. Hey, going back to team building and traveling, since you said, oh, you got a million stories burned in your, your brains there. So like, what, what were your, your favorite trips with a team to what locations, what, what, what races or locations were, were good ones? <laughs> Dirk, there's so many. Um, first of all, I will say that I am so grateful to cycling, which has allowed me to see the world. I've been to six continents and, you know, 30 different countries, and I would never have had that opportunity otherwise. So, but I mean, without thinking in no particular order, the trip to South Africa, just incredible. Um, we did a, we did a downhill there. Right. And uh, I mean, obviously my, all my times in Australia, I've been to Cairns a couple of times. That was amazing. I can't pick a favorite place in Europe because I just love Europe. But, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's your home country, Germany, I mean, I remember the first time, first time I, I went to, uh, to Berlin, for example, right. when we did that crazy world cup in, in the city park. I right. remember that so fondly because that was, I think it was the 90 or 91. And that was, that was only, that was only a year or two after the wall came down. Yeah. Right. And just yeah. traveling around Berlin and now there's checkpoint Charlie and, and, and sort of all these things. And, uh, um, uh, there's just too many, to, too many okay. dimensions. So I, you, know, you, you know what I want to, I want to, I want to get some fun stories. I was like, who, who of your athletes was easy to travel with? You said like, okay, you know, that, that one I would take on any trip and just, you know, who was an easy traveler, good travel kid. <laughs> hey man, everybody was pretty easy if they got the seat they wanted on the airplane, and everybody oh, yeah. wasn't easy if they got the if they didn't get the seat they didn't want. But oh, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, so, okay, let's, no, let's jump on like now. Who who was your your biggest challenge to to get from A to B to the you know or like who was our biggest challenge to get from A to B? <clears throat> This is going to sound like a cop out, but I really. I, I just can't think of anybody that was real bad. Everybody kind of understood the, the drill. Okay. That shit could go wrong and you just have to deal with it. You know, I, I mean, uh, Mike King, who is my dear friend and I love him. I mean, every once in a while I had to go, Hey, Mikey, just relax. We'll get there. We're all in the same boat, you know? Um, uh, but <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Dirk, I'm coming, no up, worries. I'm coming up no worries. on this one. Okay. Everybody was pretty good. And listen, if, if, if you looked out the window and you didn't see your bike bag still sitting out on the tarmac, right. everything was good. You had the seat you wanted, you were okay. You know, if you had an empty seat next to you, man, you're gold. Here you go. That, that's the rule. Empty seat and bike Julie bag. Julie was tough. Ju I will say, and I love her to death. She's my girl. But Julie, <laughs> Julie would get, Julie has a, Julie would just all of a sudden just hit the point where she was done. Dude, and and you probably know that maybe as a reporter, she was like, "I'm done. Okay. I, I want out." And and she'd hit that point sometimes before we were <laughs> before we were there. I was like, "Oh man, okay, we better get there quick." Yeah, no, I I remember that 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 kind of style. Hey, uh, you mentioned that that uh, you you tapped into Rampage and, and watched some of that one. So uh, uh, the other day. Um, What do you think about that? You know, like, is, is that to you still mountain biking or what is that? I, 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 you know, I look at that stuff, Dirk, and I, I just can't even believe it. It's like, I can't even believe it's real. I can't believe what people are doing. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, 
you know, a couple of the guys that I know did the first backflip in a BMX race. Right. And that was like unheard of. Right. And now you look at the stuff these guys are doing and these girls are doing. It's just, I look at it and go, how could you even think of that? How could you even think of that? So I, you know, I'm like everybody else. I kind of watch it with one eye closed and go, oh, it's amazing. It's phenomenal. Well, Doug, it's it's been so great to to listen to you, all your stories. Thank you for for sharing it and 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 traveling back with me. Um, it's been a great pleasure um, chatting with you and and listening to this and seeing you that you're doing great. Um, so I guess you know you're you know busy for the next uh, few weeks and months with uh, the the U.S. Uh, finals of, of of what football is coming to to an end and and the the, the baseball and so I wish you a a lot of good times and, and exciting games. Um, and then, you know, I hope that at some point we'll, we'll might see each other at, at some event, you know, again with the people. So thanks a lot. And, uh, and have a, have a great, great weekend. Thanks buddy. It's terrific to see you and talk to you again. Take care. Bye. Bye.